You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual Well, I didn't see that coming, which is more than Jeffrey Tubin's former colleagues at The New Yorker can say. Tubin is the author and reporter who lost his job after 27 years as a staff writer at The New Yorker and was suspended from his side hustle as a talking head on CNN after he pulled out his dick during a Zoom meeting with his colleagues from The New Yorker shortly before the 2020 election and had a wank. What I didn't see coming was Tubin's return last week to CNN in the most supremely awkward nine minutes of television since Donald Trump had to make his way down that ramp Antifa and Black Lives Matter smeared with grease on George Soros's orders. Allison Camerota spent nine minutes, nine minutes going over what Tubin did, the decisions he made that day, and basically allowed Tubin to plead inanity. Tubin made an inane argument. I'm not going to play the nearly nine-minute clip. It's not hard to find if you want to go watch. Tubin says he wasn't thinking. He didn't know what he was doing. He didn't know the camera was on. But what he does know and what he does think is that he shouldn't have been fired for what he didn't know he was doing. And he went and worked in a food bank over the last seven months, and he got a new book coming out. You know, as problematic and unsettling as Tubin's return to CNN was, I believe him. I don't think it was intentional. I mean, the wank was, of course it was. Your dick doesn't accidentally fall into your hands during a work meeting. But exposing himself to his colleagues like that, I don't think he intended to do that. But intent is hard to discern, and we don't want to live in a world. We certainly don't want to attend Zoom meetings in a world where guys can get away with jacking off in front of their coworkers so long as they create a little plausible deniability for themselves or reasonable doubt about their intent. Just saying I didn't know the camera was on can't be a get-out-of-jail-free card or an escape-consequences-for-your-actions-free card. But Tubin didn't escape consequences. Tubin lost his job, and he will forever have to live with the infamy which is to say I'm in partial agreement with former New Yorker editor Tina Brown. She didn't think the New Yorker should have fired Tubin. He embarrassed the magazine, Brown said, but mostly embarrassed himself. I think that's true. He did mostly embarrass himself, but he should have been fired for what essentially boiled down to sexually harassing his colleagues. And he was fired. That said, I don't think he has to go away forever. Some folks are saying Tubin is only getting a second chance because he's white, male, straight, and cisgender. Just as I don't want to live in a world where men, male, straight, white, cisgender, or otherwise can get away with jacking off in front of their coworkers, I don't want to live in a world where people don't get second chances. So maybe instead of arguing that Tubin shouldn't get a second chance because others, non-straight, non-white, non-cisgender, didn't get theirs or wouldn't get theirs, maybe we should insist that everyone get a second chance, like Tubin, and hold Tubin up as proof that everyone should get a second chance. He got his. Everyone deserves theirs. 
All right, coming up on the micro, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum Savage Lovecast, Dr. Evan Goldstein from Bespoke Surgical joins us to talk buttholes, butt sex, butt sex, best practices, butt surgery. Subscribe to the Magnum at www.savagelovecast.com for my interview with Dr. Goldstein and more Savage Lovecast, twice as much show, more guests, more questions, and no ads if you subscribe to the Magnum at savagelovecast.com. All right, let's get on to it. Here's today's show. Hey, Dan. Uh, I have a sex success story for you. This is actually the woman who called uh, several months ago with one-year-old twins who was wondering when her libido was ever going to come back. And your advice made me feel so validated, heard, and hopeful for the future. And I wanted to call back and let you know that last weekend, the kids were really tired. We put them to bed early and you know, started fooling around and I wasn't that into it, but I was like, okay, this will be good. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just like, bam, came rushing back. And it was everything we hadn't done in what, 18 months, two years of pregnancy, breastfeeding, newborn stage just came back on the table. We pulled out the harnesses, the restraints, we did anal, we dirty talk, like just the kitchen sink was all over the bed, all over the bedroom. And it was amazing. And it took everything in my power not to yell, thank you, Dan, as I was coming so hard. So thank you, Dan, for your advice, your support, your good thoughts. And to any other postpartum mamas out there, it does come back and it feels so good once it's back. Aw, that may be the best kind of success story. Very satisfying sex for you and for me. The satisfaction of getting to say, I told you so. Also, the satisfaction of hearing you were right doesn't get any better than that when you host an advice podcast. Thank you for calling. Thank you for sharing. And congrats, congrats on getting your groove back. If you have a sexual success story you'd like to share with us, give us a call. Share it. We might open next week's Lovecast with your success story. Hi, Dan and Texas Savvy At-Risk Youth. I am a cis male living in the Midwest, and my wife and I are in a monogamish relationship. Um, and I have a question for you about coming out. I've heard a lot of talk on your podcasts about how it's important to, to own your sexuality, but my question becomes... When one person in the relationship is polyamorous and the other one is not, is it okay for one member of that relationship to say, no, I don't want this to be out? Because we're in a situation where my wife is seeking extramarital activities and I'm totally fine with that, but I don't want our friend group and it's a it's a group of mutual friends that were very close i don't want that friend group knowing that about me and it's not exactly about me it's our relationship but my wife is the one who's polyamorous and if she comes out that's effectively like outing me as well as being in a polyamorous relationship and i don't really want to deal with that now Am I just being a selfish ass or is the person who's being pulled out of the closet into being in polyamorous relationships 
do they have any say in this matter? It doesn't sound like you're in a polyamorous relationship. It sounds like you're in an open relationship, a one-sided open relationship. Your wife is free to seek extramarital activities outside the relationship, and you're not interested or not allowed, depending on how kinky you are. You're not interested or not allowed to seek extramarital contact yourself. It's interesting you use the phrase and telling, and I think revealing, extramarital activities as opposed to other partners. Polyamory is concurrent, committed, romantic, sexual relationships. If your wife had a boyfriend or other boyfriends, that would be polyamory. If all your wife is doing is seeking out sex with other men occasionally, and maybe she might have some FWBs, some regulars, but they aren't committed, concurrent, romantic, and sexual relationships, well, then this isn't polyamory. This is openness. And if your wife was poly and she had another boyfriend, it would be a big ask for her boyfriend to join you and your wife in the socially monogamous closet. There's a lot of people out there who aren't sexually monogamous, but they're socially monogamous. A lot of people in open relationships don't want other people to know that they sometimes have three ways or that they have an open relationship and they allow people to assume that they're monogamous, which is sort of the default setting. It's not always an unreasonable assumption, particularly for straight people. And there's a lot of couples out there in open relationships who fly under the radar, who allow people to make that assumption about them because they're more comfortable being perceived as monogamous. So they function as socially monogamous. Pretty easy if all this is is extramarital activities for your wife to be discreet and allow you the comfort of still being perceived to be monogamous if that's important to you. A much bigger ask if she has another boyfriend or she has another girlfriend and that person can never be publicly acknowledged and your wife wants to form a partnership with that person and that person wants to be your wife's partner as well while recognizing and honoring perhaps your primacy as her you know, nesting partner. It's a big ask for that person to never be publicly acknowledged as a partner, to never be able to go on a date, to never be able to be seen in public holding hands or in a romantic restaurant and having to police themselves constantly. But if that's not the sorts of relationships your wife is having with other men, it's not that big a an ask for you to say, I value this perception. I value the perception that we are monogamous. I don't want to deal with the stigma or shame yet or right now. Of course, you're negotiating the terms of your relationship right now. You can continue to discuss and renegotiate the terms of your relationship going forward. And what you're comfortable with right now is not being out about being in an open relationship or a one-sided open relationship. Your wife can want it to be open. She could make that a condition of staying in this relationship with you at all, if she values that openness and freedom more than she values her relationship with you, she could choose it. One of you has to pay the price of admission here. You either have to pay the price of admission about being out if it's a deal breaker for your wife, or she has to pay the price of admission and being closeted about this if it's a deal breaker for you. So obviously you need to have a conversation with your wife and it is fine for her to want this, want this kind of openness want to be out about it and not get it right now. You may be more comfortable being out about being open in time, but you're not comfortable about being open right now. This is something that you either have to come to consensus about or you have to break up over. And I hope you're not going to break up over what would be for your wife at the moment because 
This isn't a polyamorous relationship, merely open. What would be for your wife at the moment a very small sacrifice? Hi, Dan. I started up an online flirtation ship with a friend mid-pandemic, and then I went to visit him in Vegas in March, and things really heated up, and we had a fantastic time. So just around the same time, I had started to see someone here in Chicago, and things got kind of serious with him. At the same time, I was still texting my friend from Vegas and really just letting it roll along, telling him to come visit me in June. And then we got closer and closer to the dates that he was going to visit me. I realized that I had completely made a huge mistake. Um, So I asked him to call off the trip. And I'm just feeling very conflicted about it. I don't know if I made the right choice. I know I've really hurt him. I'm really good friends with his family, too. And I'm worried they're never going to speak to me again. I think I know the answer. I let things go on too long and let it blow up. But some advice on how to move on, how to not feel like a terrible person would be greatly appreciated. Did you really do something so terrible? You were dating more than one person in two different cities. You hadn't committed to either of those people. You hadn't made a monogamous or an exclusive commitment to either. And then with one, you had to walk back some tentative plans you'd made about a second in-person visit after you'd become serious about the other or realized you were more serious about the other one. And of course, now that you've had to make your choice, torn between two lovers, feeling like a fool, you had to pick one, you picked one, and you're going to have to live with the doubt, the sort of nagging doubt that perhaps maybe you picked the wrong one and only time will tell. But did you do a terrible, terrible, unforgivable thing? No, no. What you did is a thing that happens. That's dating. It feels awful when it happens to you. And it's a good sign that you can empathize with what the person that you dumped, told not to come visit you, is going through with the hurt that he's experiencing. That speaks well to your character. You don't want to be a sociopath who causes someone else pain, unavoidable pain in this instance, and predictable pain. You date, not exclusive. Somebody meets somebody else and you get dumped. That happens. You inflicted pain on that person. You feel bad about it. You feel bad for them because they're feeling pain and you created that pain. Good. That means, again, not a sociopath, that you can empathize. But that fucking happens. And if you really don't want that to happen to you ever, you shouldn't date anyone. And if you find yourself in a position where you have to do that or have done that to someone else and you can't live with that, then you shouldn't be dating anyone. Now, if you feel like you did something wrong in the execution of this, like you knew it was over weeks or months before you called it off formally, well, you can't unmake that mistake. You can only make a sincere effort to learn from that mistake and not repeat that mistake going forward. And that mistake is really about inflicting additional pain because now if he realizes that it was over weeks or months before you told him it was over and you were getting on the phone with him and jollying him along and pretending it wasn't over because you were just ducking that difficult conversation, kicking that can down the road, that might make his pain a little worse because he's going to remember those conversations and he's going to know perhaps or assume that you were lying to him as you were kicking that can down the road and that'll make the pain that was unavoidable a little worse and perhaps the little worse 
the frosting on the pancake was avoidable. You could have avoided making it even worse than it was already going to be by promptly ending things when you knew it was over. So if there's a lesson here for you, it might be that. But the lesson isn't you were supposed to live a double life and marry both of these men and have families in separate cities and and keep it going for 50 fucking years. That's not the lesson here. Maybe the lesson is you needed to pull the plug as soon as you realized the plug needed pulling. But other than that, potentiality, nope, you didn't do anything here that you need to feel too terribly awful about. Hi, Dan. I'm a 30-year-old calling about an ugly situation my friend has found herself in. We started as co-workers at the same restaurant and have remained friends for years as I chose another career path and she stayed on to become the GM. During that period, she and the owner developed a romantic connection that became a full-on affair. He's currently married with kids, she's single, and he ended the affair recently, though he keeps her in the loop about his marriage and other things while they interact at work. As she tells it, he has on multiple occasions over the years expressed his desire to be with her exclusively and has given her real-time updates each time he and his wife have agreed to a divorce, then patched things up later. Needless to say, this roller coaster has caused my friend a terrible amount of emotional distress. Recently, the owner said that he was getting divorced again. My friend tried to keep her hopes from getting up, but two weeks later, when he announced to her that he's going to try and keep the marriage together once more, she crashed into the deepest depression I've seen from her yet. Obviously, this is a toxic situation, and my friend acknowledges that she needs to get a new job, but she's trepidatious because she loves her current job. Personally, I'm not sure even she knows how much of this love is or isn't tied to the emotional volatility associated with her boss. I recently offered to help her find a new job. She accepted, and within 12 hours, through a mutual friend, she was recommended to interview at a place that pays better and is very similar to where she works now provided she sent in her resume. I helped her update her resume, and a week later, she still hasn't sent it in. So my question comes in two parts. First, I'm concerned that my friend is stuck in such a toxic, manipulative cycle with her boss, someone who I personally know to be toxic and manipulative, that she can't see the way out even when the door is open for her. What's the best way to support someone in this situation without being pushy or or overstepping boundaries? Second, While I'm happy to be a supportive confidant, this cycle has existed for almost four years, and it's becoming harder for me to engage with her emotional lows while she continually hesitates to take action. I'm angry for her, and it's painful to watch her go through this. How can I express this to her in a productive way? It's really one question. The best way to help her, and how do you express to her in a productive way that this is emotionally exhausting for you? The best way to do both is to tell her you're done. You're not going to talk with her about this anymore, that this is a toxic, shitty relationship, that what this guy is doing, her boss is doing, is transparent. He's never going to leave his wife. He's never going to break up his family. He's never going to be with her exclusively or marry her, but he's going to toss that prospect out whenever he needs to, to keep stringing her along. And it's destroying her. And she is turning to you and perhaps some other friends to do all the emotional labor of putting her back together again and setting her on her feet again. When the predictable happens, it's as if she keeps shooting herself in the foot with the exact same fucking gun. And you're expected to drop everything each time she does that and rush in and stop the bleeding. And what you need to tell her is that you are done. 
you are exhausted, that you can no longer provide her with the, the crutch, the emotional support that you've been providing her at a certain point. When someone is stuck in kind of a loop like this in a toxic relationship, our emotional support becomes enabling. It's almost as if that person, your friend in this case, can tell herself that you believe in the relationship too. Perhaps subconsciously tell herself that, maybe consciously tell herself that. Otherwise, you wouldn't be making the emotional investment in the relationship, you know, a bank shot emotional investment, but still an emotional investment that you are making by being there for her each and every time the inevitable happens. Each and every time she shoots herself in the same fucking foot with the same fucking gun and it hurts and bleeds in the same predictable fucking way. Drop off a box of bandages. That's what you're going to do. You're going to drop off a box of bandages. You're going to go to her and have one last conversation. Here are all the bandages I can possibly provide you. Get the fuck out of this relationship. I lined up an interview for you for a much better job in a different place to get you away from your fucking boss with higher pay and you didn't take it. Which either means, and this is you, you are saying this to your friend, either this means you can't be helped and therefore I am wasting my time or you don't want to be helped and therefore I am wasting my time. So here, one last time, I'm offering you the box bandages. I'm offering you the help that I can give you, which is this kind of blunt, straight talk, and also the logistical help of lining up a new job, getting your resume together, helping you get that interview so you can get the fuck out of this place and away from this guy. Last chance. And if she doesn't take it, let her call someone else when he says he's about to leave his wife again and she picks up the gun again and shoots herself in the same fucking foot with the same fucking bullet. Tell her she has to call someone else. You are not going to rush in then with the bandages because you dropped them all off at her place the last time you talked to her about it. Hey, Dan, you said that furries were like leather fetishists, but I thought all furries didn't have sex in the furry suits. But don't all le leather fetishists, don't they all have sex in varying degrees of, well, what do they do? I don't know, Dan. Can you say more? Sure, I can say more. You can also get on the internet and do a little surfing around yourself and find plenty of examples of people who are furries, people who are into fursuits, who have fursonas having sex. There's a lot of furry porn out there. There's a lot of really great furry animation and furry uh, comics and cartoons that are sexually explicit, but there's also a lot of people in full-on fursuits having sex. Uh, Matt Baum was on the show a couple of weeks ago. He's done a deep dive into furrydom and the furry scene. There are people in furrydom, ferverts, <laughs> they don't like to be called, or some of them actually do embrace that term in the same way that some of us gay men embrace the term fag. There are people out there into this who are honest about the fact that it is a sexual thing for them and there's a sexual neurotic component. But there are lots of people involved in furrydom where it's not about sex. It's about escaping into these personas, into some other reality, and stepping outside yourself. That seems more prevalent in furrydom, that, that, that contingent. That seems larger in furrydom, the people for whom the fursuits and everything else isn't necessarily erotic than it is or would be in the leather scene. Most people who are into leather, most people who are leather fetishists enjoy wearing gear and wearing leather during sex. But in either case, it's not hard to find proof online at any number of different 
porn sites, that there are people out there into leather who are wearing leather while they're having sex, and there are people who are furries, who are into fursuits, who are wearing their fursuits while having sex. So dig around a little bit. You won't have to take my word for it. You can find the proof for yourself. Hi, Dan, 30-something-year-old woman calling from the West Coast with a question in the aftermath of a very serious fight I just had with one of my oldest friends, unhelpfully right after their wedding, therefore ruining the end of our trip, which is something I'm feeling really terrible about. But also not asking you to weigh in on whether or not I was the asshole here because everyone agrees that I was. But just curious what your thoughts are on the conversation that we were having generally and how to have it in the future. Because basically what I was saying was that there we were talking about fetishes and then we we're talking about pedophilia. And I was saying that there are people for whom pedophilia is a sexual orientation and it doesn't have anything to do with them molesting children necessarily if they don't act on it and that they are pretty tortured by this and they can't change their desires. They can change obviously whether or not they act on their, on their desires, but that those people need to be treated with some love and kindness because they have this thing about them that everybody deems them a monster for and they can't do anything about it. And so I said to my friend who is trans, I would think that you would potentially be able to understand that because there's, you know, a lot of people that would hate and vilify trans people and you guys can't do anything about that either. And he took that as me comparing him to a pedophile, which it was not at all what I was saying. So everyone agrees. I should never have said that. I can completely take responsibility for the fact that that was very, very poorly chosen wording or and just topic and so forth. But I'm just curious, I guess, A, how do you try to present this information to people? And then also, is there ever a way to have a conversation about this with somebody who is gay or trans in a way that they might hear it? I don't know if it even matters. Like, it's not a hill I'm worth, I feel like dying on, but... I just feel frustrated that it was so unable to be heard as far as the point that I was trying to make because it was triggering for the other person. So I I guess I'm just asking like how you might have handled that had you been having that conversation. And then also, I don't really know exactly how the best way for me to apologize to my friend is because he said he never wants to be friends with me again because of this. And I hope that's not the case because we've been friends for over 20 years. So I don't, I just feel like anything that I say will be kind of twisted and turned around. And I'm curious how you might go about giving a sincere apology for something like this. Well, if you want to patch things up with your friend, and I assume that you want to, it sounds like you want to just go and make an abject shit eating apology. That's the only way out. Apologize profusely and without a but. Apologize without then wanting to re-argue or relitigate the point you were trying to make. Just fucking drop it. That said, the point you were trying to make is kind of legit. The app comparison, though, isn't uh, to gender identity, pedophilia and gender identity. The closer comparison is pedophilia and sexual orientation. James Cantor is a sex researcher in Canada. He's been doing uh, really the only large-scale studies in the world of people who 
are pedophiles. And we shouldn't confuse people who are pedophiles with people who are child molesters. Not all pedophiles offend. That is, not all pedophiles molest children. And not all people who've sexually abused or molested children are pedophiles. What Cantor studies are pedophiles, people who are attracted to minors. And he's done large-scale studies, brain scans of pedophiles, and put together an enormous body of evidence really kind of definitively proving that pedophilia is, quote, biologically predetermined. It is not a choice. It is a sexual orientation and a curse because it's a sexual orientation that a person who is a pedophile through no fault or choice of their own can never act on. There is no way for a pedophile to express who they are sexually without, well, express who they are sexually with a minor, with their preferred objects of desire, without raping a child, without doing harm. And we need to help people who are cursed with this sexual orientation with support. We need to help them with therapy uh, and with counseling if only to protect children that they might otherwise sexually abuse. If what we want is to live in a world where children are not sexually abused, making sure that people who have, through no fault or choice of their own, pedophilia as their sexual orientation aren't acting on those desires means providing those people with some support so that they won't act on those desires. So I say all these things as a gay man, as a person with a minority sexual orientation. And as a gay man, as someone with a minority sexual orientation that was deeply stigmatized uh, and is in many parts of the world still deeply stigmatized, I empathize with pedophiles around that experience of having a deeply stigmatized sexual orientation. At the same time as a moral actor, I'm able to recognize that that stigma around acting on pedophilic desires needs to be cemented in place, needs to be upheld to protect children. I can act on my used to be universally deeply stigmatized, now regionally deeply stigmatized sexual orientation with other consenting adults and do no harm. A pedophile can't act on their universally deeply stigmatized sexual orientation without doing harm. And we need to provide pedophiles with resources, counseling, therapy, and I think some degree of empathy for their plight in order to help them not offend. So I'm with you. Again, I think the more apt comparison is pedophilia and heterosexuality, pedophilia and homosexuality, bisexuality. It is a sexual orientation. It is that deep. It is at that level. Not, I think, exactly parallel to gender identity. And I think your friend overreacted just because you were saying that perhaps they should be able to empathize with pedophiles as a trans person. I think anyone of any sexual orientation or gender identity should be able to empathize with someone who hasn't offended, who's never molested a child, and struggles with this cursed sexual orientation every day of their lives. So while I'm with you, and I get the point you were trying to make, that's not going to help with this particular friend and the whole extended friend group that are pissed at you for blowing up the wedding on the last day, blowing up the trip. So don't get into an argument. Don't Google James Cantor and the walrus. There's a terrific piece about James Cantor and his research into pedophilia at the walrus that you might want to read. 
Don't Google that. Don't send the link to your friend. Just call your friend and make an abject shit-eating apology. Take it back and apologize. Apologize, apologize, apologize for blowing up the wedding, which you do feel bad about. And you can offer a sincere apology about. You can hear the dot, 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 but in your head, but don't say it out loud. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. Um, Quick question about requesting uh, masturbation videos or just seeing if an ex has an OnlyFans. I was with somebody about eight years ago, and he is just stuck with me, and I regularly masturbate to men jerking off and I always pick men that look like him. So it's probably not a good idea to reach out to him, but I don't know what's the harm. If your ex has an OnlyFans, you don't have to reach out to him. You can just subscribe to his OnlyFans and enjoy his videos. If your ex doesn't have an OnlyFans and you would like some video of him to fuel your masturbatory fantasies and your obsession with your ex, which I'm not necessarily endorsing. That is a strategy to get over and get past your ex. Maybe find somebody else who turns you on as much or more than your ex did and does. It depends on who your ex is, whether you should reach out to him. If your ex is a kind of sex positive person, if you think knowing what you know of your ex that he would get off on knowing you're out there masturbating about him and still sexually obsessed with him. If you have a friendly rapport and sometimes maybe you recount your war stories with each other and update your body counts, if you have that kind of relationship with your ex, asking that kind of ex that you have that kind of relationship with for some FAP material or WAP material, wet-ass pussy material – to enjoy and get off on despite no longer being in a relationship. Yeah, that could be appropriate. That could be welcome. If you don't have that kind of relationship with your ex and this would just be a bolt from the blue, what's the harm? Well, you could offend your ex. Uh, If you have, you know, a mildly friendly relationship with your ex, if you're in touch a little bit about non-sexual shit, you're risking that. You're risking the relationship you do have with your ex Only you know if risking that, if losing the contact that you do have with them would be worth it, worth the possibility of getting your hands on that kind of fat video or sorry, WAP video for yourself. And if the answer is yes, well, okay, well, there's the potential harm. I doubt your ex will be traumatized by the request. I don't think he'll be curled up in the fetal position on the floor of his therapist's office after getting that email. It'll give him a story to tell his friends, maybe. Uh, You might get gossiped about a little bit. But even if the answer is no, I don't think you're going to do harm here. And again, if you have that kind of friendly, sexual, swapping war stories and body counts relationship with your ex, some people have those kinds of relationships with your ex, he might enjoy making and sending that video to you. So what kind of relationship do you have with your ex? Answer that question and then decide what you're willing to risk and then you'll know what you need to do. And if he's really that hot and you get your hands on that video and it's okay with him for you to share it with me, go ahead and email it in. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old gay male, and I have a question about grinder etiquette. Specifically, is it inappropriate to block somebody after they send you a photo of themselves? My friend and I have been discussing this, and uh, she says that it is totally inappropriate, and she would just continue on with the conversation and then slowly ghost the person. Whereas my outlook on it was, I just find that to be a waste of time. And I think there's probably a better way of expressing your sort of disinterest in somebody's looks without blocking them right away. Maybe just with a simple line or two. Do you have any input or advice here? Grinder is a cold, brusque place. And everybody who gets on Grinder knows that, should know it, quickly discovers it. That said, I think what you do here depends on the golden rule. What you would like done to yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Golden rule applies even on Grinder. So if you sent your photo to someone, caller, and they weren't interested after seeing your photos, what would you like them to do? Would you like them to politely say, hey, thanks, I don't think we're a match, and then block you? Okay, then you should say that to people who send you their photos and you're not interested. Hey, I don't think we're a match. You might want to block them quickly so you don't have to get into an argument. If they have a really negative, argumentative reaction to you trying to be as polite as possible as you shut it down because you're not interested, or would you rather them just block you and not draw it out? Some people would rather not have their time wasted. Some people would tell you that they don't want to, you know, someone to make them think they're still in contention when they're not in contention. And you shouldn't assume, it's a little self-centered to assume that you're the only person that someone who's on Grinder blasting out photos is talking to. They might not even notice that you blocked them and disappeared on them if they were fielding queries and photographs from six or seven other potential gentlemen callers. So I think the thing to do here is the thing you would like done. If you were on the receiving end, <laughs> maybe that's a bad choice of words. If you were the person who sent out the photo who was going to get rejected, would you rather a polite thanks, but no thanks, or would you rather just the person ghost you? Since there's no hard and fast rule here and people, grinder users really do come down on both sides, let me down easy or just disappear, I think you can make a choice here informed by what you would like done unto you. Hi, Dan. I'm a tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a straight cis woman from British Columbia, Canada, and I'm a longtime listener and first-time caller. I have a question about telling your partner about sex dreams that don't involve them. So I know that it's totally normal and common to have sex dreams about other people, and I don't feel guilty about it. However, my dilemma is that typically my partner and I tell each other everything from the big personal stuff to the inconsequential details of our daily lives. We've been together for four years and we don't really keep any secrets from each other. But I don't tell him about my sex dreams that involve other people because I'm fairly certain that he would be upset and insecure if he knew. But still, it feels odd to not tell him about when I have a really hot or memorable sex dream because usually I would tell him about something of that significance. But the thing is that he deals with chronic anxiety and ever since we got together, this has manifested as occasional insecurity about our relationship and my faithfulness. And in the beginning of our relationship, 
that was something really challenging, but we've worked through a lot of it and it has really eased up. So do you think that I'm doing the right thing by keeping these dreams to myself in an attempt to protect his mental health, even if it means having a secret? I'm tempted to send a squad of sex researchers and social scientists around to your place to study your relationship. Because if you and your boyfriend of four years really tell each other everything, literally everything, it's a miracle that after four years you're still together. It's a miracle that after four years you haven't managed to bore each other to death with the minutiae. You can't possibly tell your boyfriend everything. Or maybe you do. Maybe you guys have no other hobbies, no other jobs, but to uh, sit in the living room all day telling each other literally everything about your day, everything that happened to you, every thought that pops into your head. That can't be what you're doing. No relationship would survive that kind of full disclosure, daily struggle sessions, those kinds of depositions. No, no, you're not doing anything wrong by being considerate. That's what you're doing here. You're being considerate of your boyfriend's insecurities uh, around the relationship or uh, around sex and not telling him, not lying to him, not telling any lies of commission, but, and not really, a, it's not a lie of omission either. You're just not telling him when you have a dirty dream that doesn't involve him because you don't want to make him feel unnecessarily insecure. You don't want to set him back or you don't want to be driven up the wall if he's one of those people who struggles with insecurities that they weaponize. Sometimes people weaponize their insecurities to control their partners and terrorize their partners. And if he's not doing that, if it's just he's a little insecure and hearing that you had a wet dream or a semi-wet dream or just a dirty dream that didn't involve him would unnecessarily cause him anxiety, then yeah, absolutely. It is the loving and considerate thing to omit that information, to spare him from that <laughs> recounting of that particular dream. Generally, as a rule, I think most people would rather not hear about other people's dreams. I think people who believe that other people want to hear about their dreams are dreaming or kidding themselves, but maybe I'm an outlier. Maybe people disagree with me. Maybe people want to hear about the dreams of their lovers, but there's uh, another out here. There's something else that I've talked about a lot recently in the column, not so much I don't think on the podcast, a zone of erotic autonomy. We are all entitled to a zone of erotic autonomy. Even those of us in long-term committed sexually exclusive relationships and sexually open relationships, we are all entitled to some private erotic space where our brains can go, where our fantasies can go. And our partners may or may not be invited along on each and every one of our fantasies, certainly not invited along on each and every one of our dreams dirty or otherwise. And you don't have to feel guilty about that. And someone who would attempt to make you feel guilty about dirty dreams that you aren't willing yourself to have, but even fantasies that you're allowing yourself to have, even fantasies that you're indulging yourself in, anyone who would make you feel bad about that or try to convince you. And I'm not saying your boyfriend caller has tried to convince you of this, but just generally as a general rule, as a general note to all listeners, anyone who would try to make you feel bad about not just wanting to have, but actually having that zone of erotic autonomy isn't someone that you should be wasting your time in a relationship with. Isn't someone that you're going to be able to stay sane over the long term in a relationship with. 
We all have inner lives. We all have sexual fantasies, not sexual fantasies we necessarily want to act on, but sexual fantasies we want to be able to enjoy, turn over in our heads, indulge ourselves in, sometimes even when we're having sex with our long-term partner, just because helps to keep that kind of sex over the long-term interesting. Ideally, I think it's great when two people can share their fantasies with each other. Some of them, perhaps, not all of them necessarily. And I think the same standard should apply to dreams. You can share some of them with your boyfriend, but you can spare him a recounting of all of them, particularly the ones that will make him have a meltdown and ruin not just his day, but your day as well. Hi, Dan. So I'm a 24-year-old gay male, and nearly two years ago, I visited an STI clinic to resolve anal warts. The physician used liquid nitrogen treatment and botched the procedure, going too far internally. My hole, for a lack of better terms, became infected, and this procedure left me unable to have a bowel movement without extreme soreness and even blood for many weeks. I was prescribed antibiotics, and eventually the wound healed. Following this ordeal, however, I now develop fissures very easily. I'm a bottom and I've only had sex twice since this incident. It's just not the same. I noticed a small amount of blood after the first encounter and during the second, I made him go very slowly. It's a challenge because I like rough sex. Do you have any advice? Is it just extra lube and making sure he takes it slowly? Or is it worth having um, a potential corrective surgery to fix the chronic fissure problem? I just worry about the unintended consequences of such a procedure as I hear there are often risks. Joining me to help tackle this question or to answer it as it is way above my pay grade, Dr. Evan Goldstein, a nationally renowned anal surgeon and founder of Bespoke Surgical. Hey, Dr. Goldstein, thank you so much for jumping on the phone today. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we get to the specifics of the caller's uh, question, you work mostly with gay men, so you operate on a lot of gay assholes. Would it be accurate to say that gay men think more today, these days, about the appearance of their assholes? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I mean, I created a huge market as it relates to people thinking and looking at their assholes. Uh, and with that being said, what I created at Bespoke Surgical was all about understanding the functionality of how do we make sex better, safer, pain-free, um, but also understanding the aesthetic part of how do you make it look pretty. And what do you what do you think led to to that sudden concern? I, I've been gay and out for a very long time. I'm old enough to like have existed at a time when you could date somebody for three months and never really have gotten a good look at their asshole. And these days, you know, with grinder and smartphones, sometimes you've gotten a really good look at somebody's asshole before you've gotten a good look at their face. Is that totally. what's driving <laughs> the aesthetics of the asshole industry? I think you're right. I think that the reality is is that you know. We're much more open, literally, in terms of exposing everything about us. And because of that kind of instant gratification of, all right, am I going to like him? Does he have a nice cock? What about his ass? Um, and it starts to kind of create this. Um, and, you know, I also think, though, that a lot of it is the self, you know, internalized of, well, do people see something? And, and I remove something that is so small on somebody that you and I probably wouldn't actually appreciate, but it fucks with people's psyche. 
right? And it changes their mojo. Um, and the reality is, is that, you know, the goal for us is to kind of destigmatize, you know, get rid of the taboo that really plagues anal as it relates to gay sex and start to kind of say, well, you should deserve the best sex that you want. And it should be pain free if wanted and pleasurable. And the reality is that if the aesthetic bothers you, then, yes, we have certain things that we could do to fix it so that you now feel whole again. <laughs> it does seem to me, though, that it could contribute to, you know, the culture of the unattainable beauty standard. It's not just having the perfect tits or shoulders or abs these days. There's also this whole other concern. I'm thinking right this minute of all of these sort of graphics I've seen that show all different kinds of shapes and different sizes of vulvas to make women less self-conscious about how their vulvas may be different because they're, they're they vary. And they're all beautiful. Do we need the same kind of, you know, I'm all for pain-free, pleasure, comfort. Do we need the same sort of campaign about buttholes to make some people less self-conscious about that minor thing that they're asking you to take care of that you can barely see and that a sex partner might never notice? Not to drive down your own business. No, 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 no. I think that, I think it's a great point. I mean, I think we, we talk about even like douching and we started a company called Future Method. And do people need to douche? Well, they really shouldn't. We know that douching causes X, Y, and Z, but we know that people don't listen to me mm. and they're still going to do it. And so on the aesthetic piece, here we are where most of what I see is not pure aesthetic work. Most people are coming to me with, let's say, an extra piece of skin or a hemorrhoid that's not allowing them to live the sex life that they want. And yes, of course, as I'm doing it, I'm going to make it pretty. But honestly, of the 15 surgeries that I do a week, I would say that maybe one if is purely aesthetics. Um, anally, whenever someone has something aesthetically wrong, usually there's a functional component to that. And it's this top verse guy that really wants the bottom, that it's too painful, or they can't fully relax the muscle or the skin isn't able to fully open. And there's an extra skin tag in the area that is limiting them. So I agree with you that I think that society in terms of all of plastic surgery and kind of can create this where, well, do we really need to go down that road? But I must say that from what I see it's mostly the form and function that then drives, well, hey, if we're there while you're treating that, let's just make it look pretty. And that's the difference between kind of the straight proctologist where they know, have no concept of anal sex. They don't think beyond, oh, well, well, what about the aesthetic part of how I'm doing surgery? Oh, who gives a shit? You're just shitting through that hole. Mm -hmm. Well, no, we're doing a lot more to that. But I agree with you. I think society pressures, especially in the gay space, are really, really tough. I mean, body imagery, uh, cleanliness with douching, all of these things creates a lot of psyche issues internally. You were saying that some people come to you because there's an issue that may have a, an aesthetic component, but that makes anal sex painful. Um, is anybody capable of being a bottom during anal? Because I often hear from people who gave it a try, they really wanted it to work, and it just never worked. They couldn't ever get past what was painful about it. And, and, you know, it's not because they're homophobic or self-hating or have a hang-up, no. but is, are there some people who just can't? Like, anal's never going to be pleasurable or comfortable, even. I think that that leads us into definitely your caller's question, 
um, as it relates to scar tissue that happens. And we'll go further into that. But I think that the mismatch between your psychological, I want to take something up the ass and the physical, I can't. That's why I feel like I was born. Right. How do I how do I kind of take that? Now, you may be like, hey, I want fists and I want huge toys. But yet I'm going to tell you, I don't think I can get you there. But the reality from what I've seen is that because of the lack of sexual education in our world, specifically as gay sex, people feel like you can go from nothing to cock right away. There's no understanding of, hey, how do I understand the anatomy? How do I look at the muscles and figure out how over time I could stretch and dilate and get to the point of pleasure? When people see me and they're like, hey, Evan, I want to, you know, I want to get fucked. I say, "Okay, well, it's at least six to eight weeks of you and I working together really strategically using toys, dilating, seeing our physical therapist, measuring the pressures anally to understand can someone achieve what they want to in a good space. The problem is a lot of these people go from nothing to cock and it hurts and they're like, oh, forget this. This isn't worth it. But yet if you're gradually working the process, then most people are really successful. And when you tap into the bottoming side and you receive, the prostate gets so stimulated that the reason why people love bottoming, there's a reason (laughs) because it feels so fucking good. And so with that is really, I think, a lot of the education and understanding, hey, how do I graduate? It's just like going to the gym. You're not just going to go and lift 300 pounds. It takes time to train the muscles and to learn the right mechanics. To train them to relax and release, but it's not about losing control. They're not permanently dilated. Not at all. A fear that some people bring to anal sex, that if they really enjoy it and they really get into it, they're going to become incontinent. Can you reassure people about that? I do. You're not going to become incontinent. I think the people that I see over years and years are the fisting community where – And even them, they're really, really great because they all talk to each other and they're very communicative and they all look as an education. But when you start really bringing the muscle beyond capacity over and over and over through douching incorrectly, through larger toys and fists, things can definitely get looser. Now, run-of-the-mill anal sex? No. Actually, it's probably going to help you shit better than you've ever shit before because you're able to fully relax And you're able to understand the mechanics. When people start going beyond, we work with them to prevent the incontinence. A lot of people love fisting and bigger toys and double penetration. And that's awesome. Well, what can I do at Bespoke is we measure the pressures every year. We start working on contraction. So they're dilating more than enough with their sex world. How do we now make sure that their trainer at the gym is doing squats in the right way to really pull in that muscle on the pelvic floor? So there's so much to it. And the cool thing about what I do is that nobody's ever done this and nobody talks about this in a way of like, hey, I love that you love doing that. But how do I as a surgeon and a medical physician start analyzing it to bring the risks down? You're still going to do it. I want you to do it. But how do we just do it safer? So let's uh, talk about the caller's concern. 24-year-old gay guy, a bottom, likes rough sex, got anal warts, STIs happened, did the responsible thing, went to the STI clinic, got them treated. 
it seems like the treatment wasn't well performed. It went internal with liquid nitrogen, which you're not supposed to do, and was injured and now has pain. What's the advice here? Is this something that he can fix with lube and taking it slow? Or is this something that might require a surgical intervention? Probably a surgical intervention. I mean, I, I see so many people go to so many people that just don't understand the sex side of what we're trying to achieve. And anal warts is tough. Uh, anal warts, they're from a virus called HPV. We all have it. We get it from licking and rubbing and playing and doing everything we love to do. With that, some people, especially bottoms, can get so much irritation that the HPV develops into warts, both inside and out. And then obviously you're using some treatments. A lot of these treatments, what happens is, is that either the application is too deep or too aggressive. And over time, what develops is scar tissue. And a lot of these people that are applying either nitrogen or doing surgery, they're not reshaping that scar tissue as it's healing. If you think of scar tissue, scar itself is very contracting and it's weak. So that's the antithesis of sex, right? Mm -hmm. Sex, we need it to be strong and we need it to actually open. So when someone has anal wart surgery with me, first off, if it's a lot of warts, I use Botox a lot to relax the muscles. So as they're healing, the scar tissue doesn't say stay so tight. Now, most people don't do that. Now, also, six to eight weeks after surgery, we're using toys and we're dilating to stretch that scar tissue. And I always tell people, I equate it to you and I going to the gym and we're lifting weights. We get calluses from the bar. Same concept. A toy, i.e. the bar, is going up your ass and it's creating calluses. Why? Because we need that scar tissue really strong for sex. The pressures of sex are that much greater than shitting. So if you haven't done that, no Botox, not an aggressive treatment, and not dilating, what happens is the scar tissue becomes so contracted that now this poor kid's trying to have sex and that scar tissue rips open every time. And it becomes these chronic fissures, chronic scar irritation that's there. So I usually try and tell them, look, I think one thing is for sure I can send or they'll look at bespokesurgical.com to look at like the protocol that I use for post-surgery sex. And it's really starting gradual with small toys over a couple of weeks, a lot of lube. I tell people to go do it in the shower so they're really relaxed. And the key is, yes, he's going to create these tears, but we want to see if we can create them in a controlled way so that as it's healing, we're stretching the tissue just a little bit each time he's using a toy. And I usually tell people, start doing that for like a week or two and let's see how the small toy fares. If you're great, no bleeding, no pain, you feel good, always start with the small toy and then go to the medium size. That's the advice I give people about exploring anal sex for the first time. That's right. Like, don't That's go for right. the, the dick. Start with That's the right. tongue. Start with toys. I think toys are more comfortable, small toys designed for Absolutely. anal penetration than fingers are. Totally. Start there. Enjoy that feeling of penetration. Use something that's set and forget. You put it in and then you have a wank. And let your asshole feel what that kind of presence is like. And it's intensely totally. pleasurable. 
And then you make these positive associations with anal sex and being feeling penetrated and feeling folks. You're having these orgasms and then move on to dick. But everybody wants to jump right to dick. I know. Of course, everybody wants the big dick. But with this kid, I think the key is to actually see where this scar tissue is. Because if he's using a small toy and it's very uncomfortable, then most of the time I probably need to do something surgically. And what you do is you go in when he's under anesthesia, I'm able to evaluate the muscle. Is the muscle able to fully actually open? Is the skin able to open? Where are the pressure points and where? Like when I'm when he's sleeping and I'm using surgical dilators, I'm able to see exactly where he tears in the skin. And then I could do stuff to actually open that skin. So now it's like an accordion. And it's basically opening those scar lines in a strategic space so that he now can fully open. What I see with anal warts, the problem with surgery is a lot of these guys go very, very deep. And what happens is the muscle and the skin are usually kind of floating separately. But when there's scar tissue, they're now stuck together. So your body is like, I want to relax. I want to relax. But yet the skin and the muscle are fused and it won't fully open. So sometimes surgically, I need to go in there. I need to open the scar tissue, clean everything so that it's now healthy tissue, give Botox in the muscle and the skin to relax everything and start the process, like we said, with those dilators over again in a way that allows him to fully open. Um, so it is possible. You were saying that um, HPV is really common, and it is. There's also a vaccine for HPV, and totally. we need to vaccinate our sons and daughters. There's a conversation in the culture about how important it is to have girls vaccinated against HPV to prevent cervical cancers uh, in women as, as adults. There's not as much dialogue about how we need to vaccinate boys as well, if only to prevent them from passing HPV onto girls, but for the gay boys to protect them from anal cancer, to prevent, prevent all boys from penile cancer and throat cancers. Uh, and it would, you know, if this kid, he's 24 years old, 10 years ago, the HPV vaccine was already available. If his parents had had him vaccinated as a child, he might not be facing this right now. Yeah, I think that, you know, obviously they, they've now changed the age range up to the age of 45 for everybody. It used to be 26 for men. Now it's up to 45. And I think every single person in the gay community should get, even older than 45, should get the vaccine. We've seen so much positivity as it relates to getting it. It's not going to prevent it. I see plenty of 22-year-old kids who got the vaccine that still come to me with anal warts. Um, so it's not the end all to what the saga is. But realistically, it's a really good strategic way, especially if you are bottoming. Let's say you're even in a, uh, a relationship, but it's an open world and you're coming into contact with many different subtypes of HPV. The vaccine has nine types and it actually has the ones that prevent cancer. 16 and 18 are the highest risk ones. And so having that, it's three shots. You do it at one month, you do it at three months and then six months. And it really helps mitigate the risk. Some people even come to me with anal warts and they didn't get the vaccine. And just by getting the vaccine, it diminishes the recurrence rate of the HPV that they had. So I am a huge, huge, huge proponent of the vaccine. But specifically for this caller in the place where he's at now, he should look into surgery because there's probably scar tissue, as you were saying, fusing skin and muscle. 
And there's no amount of taking it slower lube that's going to fix that. Yeah, I do. I, I agree. And I think that, you know, the problem I see with 20 year olds getting surgery for anal warts is they have such good, healthy tissue that they scar so much. And then this becomes a problem. And so with that said, and a lot of it becomes a mental mind fuck because it's like I was having pleasurable sex. Now all of a sudden I can't. And then like I just am kind of getting into the gay culture. And what is this? And I'm a bottom. And the reality of what I do is like, yes, we should evaluate. And if the caller wants, by all means, uh, you know, look me up on Instagram, whatever works best for him, reach out. I'm more than happy to kind of walk through the non-surgical options that we would try first to see. A lot of these people are really frustrated where they've been trying so many things that then it just doesn't work. And so the reality is, is that coming to see me, we take a look, we get you into a good space. And most people from surgery are bottoming at about three months after. So it's a process, but we'll get you there. So before I let you go, just a, a general note, the one thing that, that you and your line of work, the one thing that you wish all sexually active adults who enjoy anal bore in mind that they knew that they brought to it the one, the best piece, best single piece of advice you would give people into anal sex. I see so many people come to me with trauma after trauma because they're taught that anal sex should be painful. People are taught that you should bleed or that bleeding is okay during anal sex. Um, and all of these things it's a lot of education, and I thank you, obviously, for having me because I think the key is getting to all the listeners so that people understand there is a scientific rationale to bottoming. And yes, you should enjoy yourself, and yes, you should do whatever you want sexually, but taking a step back and figuring out, okay, less is more approach in anal, how do I now look into each category of how I engage and start to look at risk, risk of STDs, risk of harm, risk of long-term complications, um, and figure out that there is an exact science to doing it. And how do we now kind of bring anal to the world, <laughs> you know, in the right capacity? All right. So where can people find Bespoke Surgical online and find you online? Sure. So uh, Bespoke Surgical, um, BespokeSurgical.com, obviously on Instagram, Facebook is Bespoke Surgical. Me, if you want to follow me with my two crazy children, um, intermixed with anal and sex, it's uh, <laughs> Dr. Dr. Evan Goldstein on Instagram. And then Future Method is a, a really great, I'm super excited about Future Method. It's all about products to support our community. So douches that are not toxic, uh, all these different products after probiotics, stuff like that, that helps people specifically in the anal world. Um, and that is the future method um, uh, for Instagram and then futuremethod.com on online. Dr. Evan Goldstein, thank you so much. That was a really terrific conversation. And, and thank you for all the, I think, really important work you're out there doing. I, I'm really uh, thrilled that I was able to, to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Hi, Dan. I am the cis-hetero father of two boys, six and 12. Their mother and I have always prioritized open and age-appropriate communication about any and all difficult and complicated topics, including sex and gender identity, body image, consent, etc. With my older son rapidly approaching puberty and all the tumultuous changes that go along with it, we've been talking more about his thoughts and feelings about and understanding of sexuality and relationships. 
and especially what his friends are doing, talking about and exposing him to. I recently purchased a copy of Let's Talk About It, The Teen's Guide to Sex, Relationships, and Being a Human by Eric Moen and Matthew Nolan. I'm feeling very comfortable approaching just about all the topics in the book, including anatomy, masturbation, communication, different types of relationships, gender identity, sexual identity, and even trauma and abuse. There's just one thing I can't wrap my head around how to approach porn. I'm 37, and when I was my son's age, the internet was just becoming a thing. We actually had a physical paper book, like the phone book, that listed websites, including a few adult sites, where I first got exposed to some admittedly pretty vanilla pictures of naked people and sex. These days, though, it's just fucking madness. I'm as open as the next person to the world of sexual expression, but there's some shit like a lot of shit on the internet that no one should be exposed to or involved in, especially a young person who's just forming their understanding of sex and intimacy. I guess I feel okay about talking to my son about this and being really frank about my feelings about what's definitely okay porn, like verifiably consensual, respectfully made porn, and kind of questionable porn, which honestly to me I think is most of the porn on the internet, and outright immoral and illegal acts being depicted that would horrify most people. So we can talk about it, even though it's really, really tricky, but what do I do when he actually wants to start to explore what's out there? How does a responsible sex and body positive parent participate in allowing their kids to dive into this insane world of pornography? Because it's definitely going to happen whether I like it or not. It's going to happen. Your son's going to get online and he's going to look at pornography and it's going to happen, like you say, whether you like it or not. And your sons are going to spelunk into the stuff that interests them, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's well-produced, respectfully produced, ethically produced, whether it's a good representation of human intimacy or not. So you just have to recognize and accept that you aren't in control of this. And instead of trying to regulate what your son looks at, you really need to make sure that when your son starts looking, he's looking with a critical eye. You need to tell him that porn represents a kind of kabuki sex, as I like to call it. It's heightened, it's fictionalized, it's exaggerated, and the things people do in porn aren't necessarily the things people do in real life. And porn can distort what intimacy in a relationship and actual real sex in a relationship is like. And it's not that hard to get that across to a kid. All you have to say is, you know how Disney movies aren't real life? You know how action movies thrillers, different kinds of TV shows that we have watched and enjoyed together, and we're not going to be watching and enjoying porn together, but those different kinds of TV shows don't really bear a resemblance to real life. Real life isn't like an action movie. Well, porn isn't like real life sex. It's a simulation. It's an exaggeration. And porn isn't in the same way like real life sex. Your sons are going to be exposed to a lot of things. Some of those things are going to click for them. You know, a lot of the stuff that's online, a lot of the porn that's online, we wring our hands about it shaping people's tastes, but a lot of people go looking for the porn that is to their tastes. I think where porn has a distorting effect is shaping people's expectations. And not just for boys, what they can expect from their sex partners, but what might be expected from them by their sex partners. And I think that's a place where you as a parent get in. You talk about expectations. You talk about reasonable expectations. You talk about how 
Literally, the people you're watching in porn are like the people you're watching at the circus. They're professionals. You don't see your dad and mom getting up there on the trapeze in the same way. Some of the stuff, the very athletic, crazy off-the-wall stuff you see in porn, they're basically the contortionists and aerialists of the sex world. They're circus performers, but for sex. You need to really build those sorts of filters into your son's brain so that when he is taking in porn, he is viewing it critically and he's viewing it with this understanding that it shouldn't shape his expectations, that sex is about pleasure. I really, it's great that you got him, Erica Moen and Matthew Nolan's book, that sex is about pleasure. It's about consent. It's about mutual pleasure. And sex and intimacy and pleasure can be low key. It doesn't have to be the circus. It can be the circus if he wants to run away and join the sex circus one day, uh, not as a porn performer, but perhaps, uh, you know, have crazy athletic off the wall sex with a consenting partner who enjoys him, who wants the same things that he does if he wants those things, but he doesn't have to want those things, the crazy things he might see in porn. And he definitely shouldn't go into his first relationships expecting those things. That's what you can do as a parent. You can make your kid a critical viewer of porn. You're not going to be able to control what porn or what kind of porn your kid ultimately chooses to view. All right, before we get to your response calls, listener feedback, let's read some listener tweets. Thomas Carver tweets, so at Fake Dan Savage, just dropped some wisdom on today's Savage Lovecast. One sure sign of a sketchy top at a BDSM event is if he starts a sentence with, a real bottom wouldn't, dot, dot, dot. Same goes the other way too, of course. A real top wouldn't, dot, dot, dot. Also gross as hell. Thank you, Thomas. Not just at BDSM events, though, as I'm sure you'd agree. The place people are likeliest to encounter this a real bottom wouldn't bullshit is online. And without being able to see everyone else at the munch roll their eyes or even better, loudly object to that bullshit. A kinky person, a shy sub, in search of their first experience with a dom, is a lot more vulnerable to that kind of bullshit on a dating app or on FetLife than a person is at a BDSM event. Lisa Brody tweets, the Savage Lovecast is always educational, but learning the German word for birth control pills is anti-baby pillin for real is worth the fee for my Magnum subscription. Thank you, Dan Savage. Well, thank you, Lisa Brody. I heard from some other listeners that my German pronunciation could use a little work. I clearly need to spend more time with people who speak that language. I am Y Voss tweets, I'm 35 and just came out as bi to my parents today. Of all the reactions I expected from my father, saying, I get why you like women, I like women too, was not one of them. Thanks, Dan, for the encouragement to come out via years of listening. Hashtag bi visibility. Hashtag happy pride. Welcome out. I am Y Voss and happy pride to you. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing your handle, so forgive me for that. But thank you for doing your part by coming out to your family, coming out to our families, taking that risk is why we've come as far as we have. And as I like to say, coming out is scary, but sometimes our families surprise us like I am why Voss's family surprised her. All right. Thank you for your tweets. Thanks to everyone who posted to your social media about the Savage Lovecast this week. We appreciate it. And now listener response calls. Hey, Dan, I'm calling in response to the woman from last episode who found the image her husband had made of her sister on her husband's laptop. Uh, she mentioned not being able to go to therapy until the fall. If this was a blocked artery or something serious like that, she wouldn't wait that long to get it fixed. And mental health needs to be as important as physical health. She needs to call a friend, get a family member, probably not her sister, of course, 
but do whatever it takes to carve out that time to get the help she needs, and it's important, and she deserves it. Hey, Dan, this is a comment for the person that called in who's finally in a healthy relationship after sustained abuse and is checking out during sex. I have had a very, very similar history and experienced that similarly in my current awesome relationship. And I just want to say that when you're already disassociating, sometimes fighting to be like, oh, let's talk dirty to get present is moving against stream. And I've found real success for myself when I just let myself disassociate even further and go into what my like masturbation fantasies are and my deep fantasies. And then once I'm in them and I'm feeling good again, I can sort of bring my lover into them. Like I experience them coming into them with me. So sometimes it's easier not to fight against it, but to just go with what your body and your erotic mind is asking you to do in order to enjoy the moment. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 763, the woman who is having trouble climaxing with her boyfriend after an abusive relationship. I'm just calling because I have the same exact experience. I'm a 30-year-old woman who is in an emotionally abusive relationship for six years, who has OCD, who has a lot of trouble climaxing with my amazing partner now. And I just wanted this caller to know that she's not alone. Um, Dan's advice was excellent. I would also suggest communicating with your partner beforehand and, you know, helping yourself get off when you're able to. But yeah, I just wanted to say she's not alone. She's going to be okay. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call the Savage Clubcast at 206-302-2064 and leave a message. Or you can use the voice memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Join our Facebook group. The Savage Love Facebook group is weirdly just getting started. I've always been a late adopter of new technologies, but please join us. And if you know someone who's a fan of the show and that person has a birthday or wedding coming up, give them the gift of the Savage Lovecast Magnum by going to savagelovecast.com and clicking on Gift. More questions, more guests, access to the entire Savage Lovecast archive, special hangouts for Magnum subscribers, special interviews, and no ads at the Savage Lovecast Magnum version. You might want to give yourself the gift of the Magnum Lovecast 2 while you're at it. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Dr. Evan Goldstein and Bespoke Surgical on Twitter at Bespoke Surgical. You can also find Bespoke Surgical online at BespokeSurgical.com. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you for downloading.